He says, thus says the Lord to the house of Israel. Seek me and live. But do not seek Bethel. Do not go into Gilgal or cross over to Beersheba. For Gilgal shall surely go into exile and Bethel shall come to nothing. Seek the Lord and live. Lest he break out like fire in the house of Joseph and it devour with none to quench it for Bethel. O you who turn justice to wormwood and cast down righteousness to the earth. He who made the Pleiades and Orion and turns deep darkness into morning and darkness darkens the day into night and calls forth the waters of the sea and pours them out on the surface of the earth. The Lord is his name who makes destruction flash forth against the strong so that destruction comes upon the fortress. They hate him who reproves in the gate, and they abhor him who speaks the truth. Therefore, because you trample on the poor, and you exact taxes of grain from him, you have built houses of hewn stone, but you shall not dwell in them. You have planted pleasant vineyards, but you shall not drink their wine. For I know how many are your transgressions and how great are your sins. You who afflict the righteous, who take a bribe and turn aside the needy in the gate. Therefore, he who is prudent will keep silent in such a time, for it is an evil time. Seek good and not evil, that you may live. And so the Lord, the God of hosts, will be with you as you have said. Hate evil and love good and establish justice in the gate. It may be that the Lord, the God of hosts, will be gracious to the remnant of Joseph. Would you bow with me in prayer? Oh Lord, we ask you to clean out our ears this morning that we would hear your word. We ask you, Lord, to break the areas of our hearts where we have become hardened to your truth and love. We ask you, Lord, to open our eyes to see your glory and to see the needs of our fellow man. And we ask you, Lord, to incline our hearts to your testimony. That we would love you and love our neighbor according to your word and by the power of your Holy Spirit. We ask these things so that you will be honored and we ask them in the name of Jesus our Savior. Amen. I've often heard people joke that in the morning when they get their newspaper, the first page they look at is in the obituaries. And they don't open it to necessarily see who has passed away. They often joke to say they open it to be sure their name's not written there. That very thing happened to a man named Alfred. Over a hundred years ago, well over a hundred years ago, he sat down with the newspaper and he opened it up. He looked at the obituaries and he was shocked to read his very own obituary. 
And he didn't like what he had read. Now this is what had happened behind the scenes. Alfred's brother had passed away. But the newspaper reporter and the editor made a mistake and thought it was Alfred. So they wrote Alfred's obituary thinking he had died. When Alfred read it, when he read these words, Alfred Noble, the inventor of dynamite, who died yesterday, devised a way for more people to be killed in a war than ever before. He died a very rich man. When Alfred Noble read his obituary, it bothered him. He didn't want that to be his legacy. And so after reading his obituary, Alfred Noble decided to make a change. He was going to take the vast amount of money he had made from dynamite and he created an award. An award that would be given to the people who began to seek peace in the world. Because Alfred Noble didn't want his legacy to be dynamite. He wanted his legacy to be peace. So now you have the rest of the story. That's how the Nobel Peace Prize came to be. A man who read his obituary and decided to change. If you could read your obituary, would it cause you to change your life? Now, I'm not talking about the fluff peace obituaries we write, but the real legacy of your life. Would you want to change your life? In many ways, God is speaking to Israel and He's given them their obituary. Verses 1 through 3, although I didn't read it, contains a repetition of what God has been saying before. He's saying, Israel, here is your obituary. You're fallen. You're forsaken on the land. You're not going to rise up. Israel, a city that has a thousand warriors, is going to be lucky to have a hundred left. A city that has a hundred warriors will be lucky to have a ten left. There will be decimation. Israel, this is your obituary. But God is giving this truth so that Israel will change. He's saying, I'm giving you your obituary ahead of time. And this will happen unless you decide to turn. That's why he begins repeating in this passage in verse 4, Seek me. Verse 6, seek me. Verse 14, seek good and not evil. He is saying there is time to repent. The obituary is here and it is written, but it's not come to fruition yet. There is a chance. There is the opportunity that you could call out to God and the obituary could be rewritten in a positive way saying that Israel was a people that sought their God and lived for Him. And the message that is spoken through Amos is for us today. Now recognize we are not a nation in the sense of having geographical borders like Israel. But the warning still stands for each church and each Christian. You see, we can be a church that is alive. A church that is alive and bearing fruit. Or we can be a church that is dead and bearing dead fruit. We can be a church that is pulsating with a vibrancy that comes from a passion for God. Or we can be a church with barely a pulse. God has laid that out in front of us. That's New Testament, Revelation, chapters 1 through 3. 
He is saying to the churches, he's saying, this is where you are. Turn to me or I will remove my spirit from you. You will be there, but you will be going through the motions. And as believers, our lives can simply become a theater where we are playing a role of a Christian. But the reality is far from God. So the message is the same for the church. Seek God and live. Christian, you, the one that is feeling like your life is no longer vibrant with God and you know deep down there has been a withering of your spirit. God is calling to you this morning through Amos. Seek the Lord and live. So we begin with a very difficult question. If we are to seek God, we have to begin by taking a hard look at our motivation. When we come to worship God, when we bear the name Christian, are we simply playing a role that we have learned? Or are we pursuing God with a passion? That's what God puts before Israel. He gives this imperative three times over, seek me. In other words, come home, come home. Don't keep playing the role of the prodigal. Seek me. And that word seek means to turn to God in trust and confidence. Inherent in the meaning of seek is repent. Don't keep going down the road you're going, seeking life from things that cannot give life. Seek God by turning to Him. Because verse 5 points out they were trusting the wrong things. God identifies three cities that were known as religious sites. They were known to be very religious, the cities of Bethel, Gilgal, and Beersheba. They were considered to be sanctuaries, holy places, because what had happened there? Bethel is the place where God renewed his covenant with Jacob. And he promised Jacob the same things that he promised Abraham. Bethel literally means house of God. That was a holy place. The Israelite may think, if I want to be close to God, I'm going to go to the place where my forefather Jacob renewed the promises of God. Gilgal was the place the Israelites came to after they crossed over the Jordan River or through the Jordan River. And they stacked stones and Gilgal came to be that place where they worshipped God after bringing them through the waters. And the Israelite may think, you know what, I want to be right with God so I'm going to go to Gilgal. And I'm going to show up there and pay homage to God at the place where Joshua, our forefather, built those altars. Beersheba means well of oath. It's a place where Abraham met Abimelech and they made a covenant to bring about peace. And it said at Beersheba, God, God was worshipped by Abraham as the Lord, the everlasting God. The Israelite may think, I want to be close to God. So I'm going to go to that place where Abraham worshipped God, the everlasting God. But therein lie the problem. They thought that simply by going there, everything was fine. Just show up at Gilgal, pay your dues, and live life. Show up at Beersheba. It's a holy place. That's what God wants. He wants you to just show up and then go and live your life. So, in a play on words, at the end of verse 5, he says, Gilgal shall go into exile, Gilgal. Bethel, which means house of God, will become Beth-all, meaning house of nothing. God is saying you can't coast on tradition. 
You can't coast on playing a role. Just showing up is not pleasing to God. Jesus called out the Pharisees for that very thing. You keep in mind that the Pharisees were the respected religious people of the day. They were the ones people would look at and say, I hope Junior grows up to be a Pharisee like him. If somebody knows God, it's got to be the Pharisees. Look at how they go to temple. Look how they know the Torah. And Jesus looks at them. He says, you whitewashed tombs. He looks at these people who are full of religiosity and he says to them, you are nothing but a gravestone that has been painted white. You're pretty on the outside, but inside there is nothing but death and decay. Jesus had no room for people who played a part without really seeking God. Paul writes in Timothy to first, in 1 Timothy, he says, Timothy, avoid those who have the appearance of godliness. They know all the right words to say. They know theological truths, but they deny the power thereof by the way they live. Deny them. There's no room for people playing a role. Psalm 51, as David is repenting of his sin, he says unto the Lord, God, you desire truth in the inward places. You see, prayer, Bible study, worship, they are all good things. But there is a danger for each and every one of us that they simply become something we do because we're supposed to. We show up because we're supposed to. And we are in danger of playing the role of the Pharisee without having a heart that is broken before God saying, Lord, change me. Let me live for you. See, it's amazing the extent that we will go to give the appearance of something. Even in the world. Did you know that for that person that owns the SUV and has the big off-road tires but doesn't have time to go off-roading, did you know you can buy a spray-on mud? For that soccer mom who wants to be known as the mudder mom, $15 a can. And at one point it was selling like hotcakes. Give the appearance of it. What would you do this weekend? Well, just look at my SUV and tell you what I did. Play the role. I wonder if we're not guilty sometimes of finding that spray on Christianity. I know the right words to say when I'm with this people and that's on Sunday. But then Monday through Saturday it's a dog eat dog world and I've got to do what I've got to do to get ahead. If it's a dog eat dog world then I'm the leader of the pack. And we compartmentalize our lives. God says to Israel that's exactly what you're doing. You think that by showing up at these places and then going out and ignoring the plight of the poor, living lives based upon greed and pursuing idolatry that I'm pleased just because you show up at Gilgal and at Beersheba and at Bethel? Do we think God is pleased if we show up at Trinity and then the rest of the week give no thought to how we treat others? Because to seek God means we seek to love others and pursue justice. You know, if I were to ask, well, what does it mean to seek God? Most of us would probably give the church answers we've grown to know. Well, it means attending worship. It means reading my Bible. It means praying. It means, okay, I'll get real radical. Seeking God means I give a tithe. Help me, Jesus. 
It's funny, God doesn't go there here. Look at the text. Notice in verses 6 and 7, he gives the call again. Seek me and live, lest, okay, if you don't seek me and live, judgment's going to come. Now, that's nothing new. That's been the message Amos has been preaching. But in verse 7, we get a glimpse of the reason why. Oh, you who turn justice to wormwood. Wormwood is a, a bitterness. So he says, you're taking justice, which is to be sweet. And you're making it something bitter because you're ignoring it. And you cast down righteousness to the earth. You don't care about setting things right. You're happy with the status quo as long as you have got yours. He speaks of their hatred of justice. Now keep in mind that justice is about fair and impartial treatment based upon the Torah. In other words, this is what justice is. Loving your neighbor as you love yourself. It means expressing a concern for others, doing what we can to show them the love of God. That's Torah, that's New Testament, that's the covenant. But he says here in verses 10 and 11, he gives further indictment against Israel. They, that's Israel, they hate him, hate him who reproves in the gate. They abhor him who speaks the truth. In other words, when somebody shows up trying to give justice... And they show up and they're saying, we need to treat the poor better. We need to be sure there is indeed equal opportunity for people. They shut that person up. Fire that judge. We don't want to hear that prophet. If we go about changing the way things are, what will happen? Things are good. I'm sorry that, that the poor suffer, but you know what? That's their problem. And so often that becomes our thinking. What God is saying is that when justice is ignored, life turns ugly. When judgments are made about a person on the, based on the color of their skin or the amount of money in their pocket or where they are from, justice is undermined. James warned about this. James spoke of in the, in the early church. He said, how can you say you love God and then you ignore your brother who doesn't have a coat? You say you love God, but yet when that person comes in who's wealthy, you give them the prime seat, and the brother who is poor, you ignore. God calls that blasphemy. Isn't it interesting that what he says is blasphemy is not a, a theological truth being taught. It is a life being lived. He says a life for a person that proclaims to follow Jesus but ignores the issues of justice is blasphemy before God. Now, I know, I know again, the thinking comes in. Well, there's so much in the world. What can I do? And I know that there is a temptation for us to say, well, when we deal with the poor, that's their fault. We can't change all that. Jesus said, the poor you will always have with you. But what we can do is to look at what effect we can have. We can look at our hearts and to say, have we turned a, a, a blind eye to that suffering? Do we think, well, that's just those people over there? Gary Haugen has written a book entitled The Locust Effect where he studies poverty. And the thesis of his book and what he sets out to prove is this. The majority of poverty in the world is caused by violence. Not by, not by just happenstance or disasters, although that does happen. But he says the majority of poverty in the world is because of the sinfulness of humanity in repressing. And as an example, he talks about justice. Things that are done to protect people. 
Did you know he says in the District of Columbia in the United States, the District of Columbia spends on average $850 per person on police protection. In Bangladesh, the government spends less than $1.50 I'm sorry, $1.50 per person. In the U.S., there's one prosecutor for every 12,000 citizens. One person that's to, to prosecute crime. But he says in Malawi, there's one prosecutor for every 1.5 million citizens. Where's justice? David Brooks in the New York Times writes, Unless cruelty is tamed, poverty will persist. But that's over there, Pastor. I could show you poverty within 10 miles of this church. What should I just focus on here? Let me ask you this question. Does God just focus on here? You see, we need to have our eyes open and to say, Lord, how would you use me in this world? I can't solve all the problems. What would you have me do? Not just to, to it's like the old cliche, you know, give a man a fish, you feed him for a day, teach him to fish, you feed him for a life. How can we involve, be involved in showing the gospel? Not just preaching it, but showing it. Showing compassion. That's what God would have us do. He says, how can we turn a blind eye to the needs around us? And then say we're worshiping the one true God. Jesus was asked, what's the greatest commandment? He says, there are two. Love the Lord your God, then love your neighbor as yourself. We start here. We start within the church. We start with how we treat one another. We start with showing love and compassion to one another. And I really believe that if we will pray that most dangerous prayer, Lord, open my eyes to see as you see, Lord. We can't stay the same. We can't. But the first thing I think we've got to see is the greatness of God because that's exactly where Amos goes. Verses 8 and 9 seem like an odd intrusion because Amos breaks out into doxology. Now, you know, in a preaching class, you would say, that's crazy. Seek the Lord and live. He who made the Pleiades and the Orion and turns darkness into the mornings, who makes destruction flash. Okay, Amos, what's your point? Here's the point. God's aware. He takes us back to a theological vision of who God is. He says, our God made the consolations. He turns darkness into the morning. He turns day into night. He calls forth the waters. I was so moved in what Nathan read in Isaiah 40 of thinking of how great God is. God is not just the creator of the mountains. He's not just over the mountains. God's big enough to have a scale to measure the mountains. He can put Everest on the scales and tell you exactly how much every ounce of dirt weighs, how much dirt is found in it that is how great our God is and that's the point he's making here the God who made the Pleiades and the Orion surely that God can't be aware of what I'm doing in Jonesboro Tennessee God's got bigger and better things to do he makes destruction flash forth against the strong and destruction comes upon the fortress in other words the supreme God of the universe is also the God of Jonesboro and he knows He's not turned a blind eye. He's not too big to see the injustice that is going on. So he calls out, seek me, seek me, come unto me. This God is gracious. He wants us to know life. Do you see the repetition each time? Verse 4, seek me and, what does the text say? Seek me and, now that's your cue. Right? Seek me and, 
Verse 6, seek the Lord and seek. Okay, now that was weak. This is much better if we work together. Seek the Lord and look down to verse 14. Seek good and not evil that you may. Where's life found? You see, the world around, our sinful nature says, life is found in getting all you can, canning what you get, then sitting on the can. Forget about everybody else. The world around us inundates us with this message. You live for you. God is saying that's not life. If you buy into that thinking, he's saying you're like a sailor at sea who grows thirsty and sees all this water and begins drinking the seawater. And you're killing yourself without even knowing it. He says, if you will come to me, I will give you water that gives you life. You want to be free from greed? Practice generosity. You want to be free from bigotry and hatred? Begin to serve others that are different from you. Talk with them. See, God desires the church to represent the kingdom. And as we begin to do that, we are showing people what the kingdom of God is like. And in doing so, we find life. Verse 14 rephrases the call. Seek good and not evil. So what we have to do is recalibrate our thinking. You see, because what happens because of our sinful nature, we think often that what is evil is actually good. And that what is good is evil. And God says you need to recalibrate your thinking to recognize that life is found in seeking what is good. And not only seeking it, look at verse 15. To recalibrate yourself to hate evil and love good and establish justice. That idea of loving good and establish justice are, are parallel ideas. Justice is fixing what is broken. It's being aware that we are all impacted by the sinful structures found within our society. How do we learn to hate evil? How do we learn to love good? It goes back to what we trust. To take a hard look at the messages we hear. Airline pilots or pilots of any type are taught that when you are in the cockpit and you are flying, don't try to gauge where you are by looking at the clouds around you. Don't get caught looking at the sky because that will lie to you. You know how you keep focused? You pay attention to your instruments. You look at your instruments. Don't get caught up in looking out the window. Look at the instruments. So God is saying, don't get caught up in looking at the world to gauge what justice is. He says, look at the instruments at my word. And begin to live based upon that. Learn to hate evil and love good. Hebrews talks about having our senses trained by discernment. The mature Christian is discerning to know what is evil and what is good. And that's the promise of life. That's what we all want, isn't it? Life. Joy. Peace. Fullness. He says that's found in seeking me. Jesus was teaching some hard things according to John chapter 6. Very hard things about his identity. People began to leave. They didn't like what they were hearing. 
So then Jesus looks at the disciples after crowds are leaving. He says to the disciples, what about you? Are, are you going to leave me too? And Peter, oh foot in the mouth Peter, steps forward, but this time he gets it right. Because he says, Lord, you have the words of life. Where else are we to go? In the proclamation of coming judgment, we are being given the offer of life to seek God and to live. So the question becomes, what will we do? What will we do? I want to ask you to bow your heads with me.